Thanks. That was great. Good morning, everybody. All right. So I'll make sure we're all together here. My name is Ben Kearns, one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, it's super um, great to be together this morning. Gosh, it was a great worship set. My wife did such a sweet job with the book. And, uh, and this is our last Sunday in Songs in the Key of Life. I know, so sad. And uh, so I want to show you a picture. And uh, I want you to see if you can tell me who is the, the woman on your right. Do you know who that is? I'm sorry, who's the person on your right? Okay, it's Carrie Underwood. Yeah. Now, here's a harder question. Do you know who the man on your left is? That's right, Bo Bice. Katie is the only person in America who knows who Bo Bice is. And this is why in 2005, American Idol was, uh, you know, at, at its pinnacle. We just had our first son and uh, he had colic and he just screamed all the time. And we got hooked on American Idol. And we were so in that we actually were voters. We were voters for American Idol. We were part, like Carrie Underwood is actually thanks to me and part of my part of helping her launch her career. Unfortunately, Katie thought Bo Bice was going to be the next American Idol. And she leveraged all of her voting for him and, well, we all know how that turned out. The one time in our whole marriage I was right. So I'm going to hold on to that for a long, long time. But 2005, American Idol, Carrie Underwood shows up on the scene and now is like this superstar. And I thought, man, what better way to end our songs in the key of life than a good old-fashioned revenge song by Carrie Underwood. There's a couple other revenge songs I wanted, like uh, Alanis Morissette has one, but it was a little too raunchy and had a couple of too, F, too many F-bombs right in the front. And uh, another, another song that I love, no one else would know about. And this one, I think there's like, you know, skank or something's in there. So just this is mildly PG-13, but you'll get the hint. This is a great song. Get your girl power on. Enjoy. Yeah, Todd, I don't know why you're clapping. I feel like every male in the room is like, oh my goodness. Like girls like, yes, finally, someone's speaking my language. Every guy's like, oh my goodness, I hope my car just does not get thrashed someday. Well, here's the deal. What's so incredible about this song is this is the most biblical, true thing of all time that we actually long for Louisville slugger justice. It is in us. Right? We've all been betrayed. We've all been wronged. There's, all, there's someone in our life who we love dearly who is just taken on the chin by somebody else. And there's everything in us, right? Wants to take a baseball bat to that person's car or maybe their mouth, depending on your level of anger. But you have to know that that thing that rises up in you is actually real. It's from God. I mean, you guys are beautiful. You're here at Marine Covenant and you're all classy people. And you're like, no, we just pray for forgiveness for them. I know God bless you. But if you're honest with yourself, when you've been betrayed, when you've been wronged, when someone close to you has just been devastated, that feeling of needing justice, that feeling of needing to take a baseball bat to the offender, to the oppressor, to the person who has wronged you or that person, gosh, you are in good company. In fact, David in Psalm 58 says this, even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they're wayward and they spread lies. I mean, he is just on this tirade right now. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears, that will not heal to the tune of a charmer, however skillful the enchanter may be. They break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. King David, right? break their teeth. How cool, like when you're reading your Bible and you're like, Jesus loves me, this I know. You're like, Psalm 58 also has some great stuff for us, right? Break the teeth of those who have wronged me. Smash their taillights of those who have wronged me. That you have to know that that 
feeling, that need to balance the scales is actually from God. We are made in the image of God and that our core longing is that we actually need justice. We need others to get their justice. That is in us. And in fact, when something is wrong, when someone has been wronged and they don't get justice, there's like a violation in the, in, the, in the cosmic order. Like it is not okay. We try our best to put it under the rug. We try our best to make, to get through it. But there's this core, core longing that we need others to get justice. But what's interesting is we all want others to get theirs. But when it comes to us, we have a different need. We actually need mercy towards ourselves. Because oftentimes, we may not even realize it, but we're the person who somebody else wants to take a baseball bat to. Somebody else wants to smash our teeth out. We may, we just cut somebody on, off on the road. We have no idea that we offended them, right? But we, we know us. We know the complexity of our story. We know how we really are. And so we know for us, we need mercy. And so there's these two things where we, we want justice for other people. We long for it. It is part of our DNA. And yet we know how complex we are and we know how broken we are. And we also know that we need mercy. And so how are we going to solve that problem? And what's interesting is all humanity for all of time in every part of the world and every religion has tried to navigate these two things to balance justice and mercy. And what's interesting and why I love the Christian story, why I love Jesus, why I love being a Christian is because Jesus found a way to satisfy both those longings. So like Kay said, we are um, going to start Lent this week and we're going to be moving towards Easter. And the life and ultimately the death of Jesus and his resurrection is the pinnacle of the Christian story. And what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, especially in his death and resurrection, is called the atonement. There was something that happened in that moment in human history that changed the world forever. And in fact, Christians have always been disagreeing about what does the atonement mean? When we say the atonement, what are we talking about? There's all these different theories of the atonement. And in fact, a lot of Christians and a lot of churches divided over. They said, oh, you believe that about the atonement? You believe that? And they all split. But we are covenanters. And because we're covenanters, we're like, oh, there's got to be a through line. There's got to be a middle path. And there is. And as covenanters, what we come to understand is all of these different theories of what happened when Jesus died on the cross are actually all different pictures of, a, of, of different lenses to a really complex picture. We don't just pick one theory and go, that's all that happened. It's all of these many pictures that give us a fuller picture of what Jesus did on the cross. One of my favorite theologians, Scott McKnight, he compares it to having golf clubs, um, all different types of golf clubs. And I'm not a big golfer, so I don't fully resonate, but some of you golf people, you might get what's going on here, right? It's all golf, it's all the same, but every shot needs a different, a different club, I think is how it works, right? Every shot needs a different club. And just like there's all sorts of different things that we need in our walk with God, the complexity of the atonement satisfies and meets us in all those different places. And so this morning, we're going to look at the atoning work of Jesus Christ. What Jesus did on the cross are things that we as humans have tried to do, but we're unable to do, and that Jesus ultimately accomplished all by himself. Jesus fights the battle for us. We're going to see that Jesus in the law court forgives our sins through the work of the temple that Jesus makes us holy, and that Jesus is the ultimate picture of the exile and invites us home. So that's where we're going this morning. So first, let's talk about this, that Jesus wins the battle over our enemies. This is my inner feeling as being a pastor, being a youth pastor, spending my whole life feels like working with people who have just been wronged by other people. 
very, very rarely does someone who does the wronging come into my office and say, I totally screwed up. How do I make this right? It's always the other person who says, my life has been devastated by this dirt ball. And there's this thing in me that's like, let's go to work. Like I will throw a brick through that person's mouth or window. And I think, who's going to guess that a pastor at Marine Covenant is the person that threw a brick through the window? And I would do it all the time. And especially in youth ministry, these precious girls would give their whole heart to these dirtball boys. And I'd be like, listen, boy, if you break her heart, I'm going to punch you in the mouth. And the best part is that I've been at our church long enough that I probably have one punch in me before I get fired. And you might be it. And, uh, but there's this thing, right, that the people that we love, the people that are close to us, these precious people that when they have been wronged, we want to make it right. All throughout the Psalms, all throughout the prophets, God's people are crying out, right? There are these oppressed people in exile, on the run, and they're crying out, God, hear us. Smash the teeth of the oppressors. Make the wrongs right. Like there is this cry out that Jesus would win the battle against our enemies. And what we find is when Jesus comes and lives and ultimately dies on the cross, part of the work that he did on the cross is that he conquered death, he conquered sin, he conquered the power of hell, and he conquered our enemies. So all of the things that we need to be made right, Jesus is like, listen, I'm going to take care of that for you. And because we know that Jesus is going to take care of that for us, we actually can step back. We don't need to get in a blood feud over it because we're going to trust that Jesus is going to make all wrongs right. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, John says this, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. No one ever likes talking like that. But let's think about that for a second. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. When we do things that are wrong, we partner with the enemy, with the evil one. We are the ones that are causing pain and brokenheartedness to somebody else. When someone causes that to you, it is a violation of the natural order. Let's go back to that one more time. Sorry. Um, It is a violation of the natural order. So it goes on and says, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Like Jesus came and when he came and when he died on the cross and when he rose again, he came to destroy the devil's work. Like there is a spiritual battle that is happening that there is no powers, no principalities, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And Jesus is the point of the spear. He is the champion of the battle and he is going to make all wrongs right. Every personal issue, every personal vendetta, every personal brokenness, Jesus is going to fight that battle He's going to bring ultimate justice someday. And for those of us who've been severely wronged individually, right, we need to lean into the trust of God's character and God's justice. But what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't just win against the battle of our enemies. He actually wins the battle against the enemy. And this is what's so incredible. that When Jesus died on the cross, he took Satan down forever and all time. And for us in Marin, we're like, that doesn't really jive with us so much. But that's why I love reading people who live in a different time and in different parts of the world. And uh, this last year, I've been reading through Strength to Love. It's this this collection of sermons by Martin Luther King Jr. And I'm just compelled by him for so many reasons. But he was just a pastor. He wasn't just a pastor. He was a pastor during um, the Jim Crow era of the South and was on the front lines of the civil rights movement. And he was willing to stand and call out sin, call out oppression, call out the work of Satan. And what's crazy about him, I think more than almost any other Christian leader, especially of his era, he was able to do that in the context of who Jesus is, longing 
for mercy and restoration for those who have been doing the oppression. But he has, there's two quotes that I just want to share with you that I just think are so powerful. In one of his sermons called, Our God is Able, he says this, Let us notice that God is able to subdue all the powers of evil. In affirming that God is able to conquer evil, we admit the reality of evil. That's an interesting line. In affirming that God is able to conquer evil, we admit to the reality of evil. Christianity has never dismissed evil as an illustration or as an error of, moral, of the mortal mind. It reckons with evil as a force that has an objective reality. But Christianity contends that evil contains the seed of its own destruction. For history is the story of evil forces that advance with seemingly irresistible power only to be crushed by the battering rams and the forces of justice. And he says uh, in this other sermon, the death of evil upon the shore, he, he preaches this whole sermon about what it must have been like for the uh, Israelites to see the Egyptians washed up on the shore. They're the oppressors, the, the people that had them in bondage, in bondage for God to like fully wipe them out. And in the middle of the sermon, he says this, above all, we must be reminded anew that God is at work in his universe. He is not outside the world looking on it with a sort of cold indifference. Here on all the roads of life, he is striving in our striving. Like an ever loving father, he is working through history for the salvation of his children. As we struggle to defeat the forces of evil, the God of the universe struggles with us. Evil dies on the seashore, not merely because of man's endless struggle against it, but because God's power to defeat it. Amen to that. When Jesus came, when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus rose again, he wins the battle. Part of the work that he did on the cross was to conquer sin, conquer death, conquer evil. And someday in the distant future, he is going to make all wrongs right. I love that. Jesus fought the battle. The second thing that Jesus did when he died on the cross is Jesus forgave our sins. There's a picture of the law court. And here's a really hard transition it's we naturally know all the ways that people have sinned against us, but it takes some work to reflect and to think about how have we actually sinned against other people. And what's interesting is the scriptures were written to an oppressed people and that the prophets, they spoke to people in exile. The, the letters of Paul were written to a persecuted church. And yet there's very few times when they are saying, listen, you need to rise up against Caesar, rise up against empire. You need to smash the mouth of the powerful people around you. Actually, the compelling voice of the prophet, the compelling voice of, the, of, of Jesus and, the, and, the, and Paul are that you and I are part of the problem. We, in our sinful nature and in our sin, are people who cause death and destruction to those around us. And so part of what Jesus did on the cross is to recognize that we are sinful people, right? In Romans 6, 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. When you do something wrong, the, the consequence of that is death, right? When you do well in your job, you get a bonus. When you sin, the consequence of that is death. There's this passage in Romans where he says, um, says, while we were enemies, right? While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Since we have been now justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So you think of all that anger, all that justice in us that wants that for somebody else. The truth is our sin deserves that from other people. Our sin deserves that from God. And yet in Romans 3, 23, Jesus comes up with a plan to solve that. He says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
So it's not just the bad people. Every single one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Part of the work that Jesus did is we stand in this courtroom guilty of sin. And we deserve justice from God, but we know we long for mercy. And Jesus stands in our way. He takes the punishment upon himself and he pardons our sin, right? One of the things that happened in the atonement was this, this picture of the law court where Jesus atones our sin. He's a sacrifice for sins. He pays the punishment that God has towards us and we are now pardoned for our sin. So we have Jesus in the, the picture of the battlefield fighting against sin and conquering sin and death. We have in the picture of the law court where Jesus stands in the way and pardons us, takes the penalty for our sin. The third way is that Jesus actually transforms our being. There's a picture of the temple. Now, are any of you guys fans of the, the TV show Friends? Very few. I don't want to say that out loud. That's fine. I, I love the show. It's my college era. My kids found it on Netflix and they've watched it and their brains are mush now because of it. And so I love it. But this is one of my favorite episodes. This is a, a, an episode where there's the Thanksgiving meal. And if you know anything about the show, uh, Monica is this incredible cook, uh, cook. This is Rachel. She's a horrible cook. In fact, she's, you know, she's never done anything for herself her whole life, but she's going to make this dessert. And so Monica says, Rachel, you make this dessert. And so Rachel all by herself is making a trifle. And I've only had a trifle once in real life. And this is a really incredible, complex delicious dessert, right? It's all of these different layers. And Rachel is making this dish and there's ladyfingers and there's strawberries and custard. And, uh, and what happened was in the recipe book, the two pages were stuck together. So in the middle of this trifle is a layer of ground beef sauteed in onions and peas, and then custard and banana on top. And this episode is just hilarious, watching everybody try to figure out what are they going to do with this dish. And at one point, Ross goes, it smells like feet. And you could actually like tell like, oh my goodness, having ground beef in the middle of a trifle actually ruins the trifle. It smells like feet. And there's two different options, they, right? Everybody else figured out a way to get rid of it. So Chandler, at one point, he takes his dish and he goes, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to enjoy it on the balcony. And Rachel goes out the balcony. He's like, you'll never guess a bird swooped down and spread it all over the ground. But the bird seemed to really enjoy it. She's like, this is so weird. And then uh, she goes to take a bite of Ross's and Ross shovels in all his mouth. So she doesn't realize that her des dessert that she spent all day working on is a disaster, right? And then there's Joey who starts eating this thing. And he's just eating it and loving it. And everyone's kind of staring at Joey like, what are you doing? He's like, this is actually pretty great, right? Custard, good. Strawberries, good. Beef, good. And everyone's just like staring at him. And I watched this episode like five times yesterday getting ready for my sermon. So it'd be in me. But I just laughed out loud every single time. And what's so funny is I think about this idea that we are really this trifle with this layer of ground beef, sauteed onions and peas. We know we're good people. We look around in all of creation. We see humans are incredible, right? They're creative. They're beautiful. They do the most incredible philanthropic things. Like human beings are incredible. But there's this layer. In the Christian world, we call it our flesh. But there's this layer of ground beef that has permeated our entire dessert. And we actually smell like feet. And we kind of have two choices, right? We either choose to throw it away and pretend it doesn't exist at all. 
or we just embrace it fully and just eat through every bite. And this is just who I am and you got to deal with it. But the Christian story, the atonement is that the work of Jesus, the temple, the picture of the temple is that we are these sinful people, not just this top layer of sin, not just doing bad things like the law court, but the very core of your being is this rebellious, prideful, ground beef sauteed with onions and peas layer. And because of that, we are separated from God because God is holy, he's righteous, he's pure. And because of our sin nature, we cannot be close to him. Um, in, the, in the temple in Jerusalem, right, there's the Holy of Holies, which represented the presence of God. And there's this giant curtain that was to separate this holy, perfect God to all of us dirtball humans with this like ground beef layer. Well, the, the, the priests would sacrifice um, animals all the time as this blood would kind of cover the sin that would make, they would kind of like cover our sin just enough to make us acceptable to God for a moment. But Jesus, when he died on the cross, he ultimately found a way to, to change us forever. It says that the, 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 the curtain was torn in two, that there's now no more separation between God and us because Jesus found a way to make us right. Paul paints a beautiful picture of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. And he finishes in verse 21 saying, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This picture of the temple and this idea of atonement is not that Jesus just covers the top layer of our sin, but he actually comes in and does surgery and scoops out all of the ground beef, all of the onions, all of the peas, right? All of the ways that the molecules and the feet smell have permeated all of who we are. What Jesus did on the cross is beginning to give us his righteousness. He exchanges his righteousness for ours. And we get his righteousness. When God sees us, he sees us through the lens of Christ as these incredible, precious daughters and sons that he created from the beginning of time. And he begins to do that work inside and out. And the last atonement theory that I think is just incredible, just to wrap this up, is this picture of the exile. And the, the, the story of the exile um, is, the, is the foundational story in Judaism. My dad, right, who I love him to death, but he could care less about God, could care less about scriptures. And yet every spring, we're compelled to sit around the table and tell the Passover story. It is a story that has shaped Jewish people for 5,000 years. And here's the story, right? That, that in the very core of our being, that we know that we are God's chosen people. We know that we're God's special possession. And somehow we ended up in Egypt in slavery, and we don't know how to get out of it. We can't get out of it ourselves. And God brings a deliverer, Moses, to come. And Moses comes and does battle with Pharaoh and, gets to, and takes his people from exile, from slavery, through the Red Sea, through the baptismal waters, into the promised land where they get to fully embrace all that God has for them. And Jesus is the, is the, is the epitome, is the, is the fulfillment of that story that we in our very being know we're made in the image of God, know that we have value, know that we're made for something incredible, but have found ourselves in bondage. Sometimes just personally, sometimes spiritually, sometimes in real life, there have been people who have been found themselves in bondage. And Jesus is the deliverer. When Jesus came, lived, died on the cross, he made a way for us to be, go from being exiles to be adopted into the family of God, that Jesus now actually invites us home. In John chapter 14, Jesus tells us, he just paints this incredible picture. He says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. 
For you believe in God, now believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. Now, if that were not so, would I have told you that, that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas says this, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't mean that in an exclusive way. He meant that in a powerful way, that Jesus, and it is his atoning sacrifice that fights the battle, that forgives our sins, that cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and now is the way to the Father. Jesus has made the path giant and whole. Jesus is preparing a room for you and a room for me. Now, I don't know the first thing about building. I don't know the first thing about design. I don't know the first thing. I can barely put a light uh, plate over the light switch. That's the extent of my being. When you get to design that for yourself or for someone you love or for your kid, right? All those intentions, all that intention goes into each part of those rooms. And I just imagine that's what God does. He knows exactly your joys and your passions and your tastes. He knows what posters he's going to put on the wall. He's preparing this room for you. Right? We've been in exile. We've been orphans for our whole life. And Jesus is the one who's inviting us back home to be adopted into God's family, to be precious daughters, to be precious sons of the King. And he's prepared a room for us. If it wasn't so, he wouldn't have said that, right? And what I love about that is if we can really get our heads around this idea that we're adopted into the family of God, that we now have access to all of God's blessings, all of the rights and privileges that it means to be God's very own daughter and very own son. We've been given spiritual gifts. We've been given resources. We've been given access. We've been given intimacy. We've been given all of these blessings because we are now part of the family of God. And because we're part of the family of God, God actually wants his kids to be responsible, noble co-laborers for him in the kingdom of God. That we now, because of all these blessings, God now compels us to be part of the solution of people who are expanding the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That we now are the people who want to stand and fight for justice, to see the poor, to see the oppressed, to make space for them, to advocate for them, to leverage our spheres of influence for them. We're now people who compel the people in our spheres of influence to lean into mercy and forgiveness and grace. So our core longing is that we need others to get justice and we need mercy towards ourselves. But if we can fully lean in to the atoning work of Jesus Christ, we actually get the balance of both those. Because the truth is, we deserve justice and God longs to extend mercy to every single person. So when Jesus came, when Jesus died on the cross, there was this atoning sacrifice that happened. It's called substitutionary atonement because what that means is all these things we try to do ourselves, but we could not do it on our own. Jesus himself was the one who had to fight our battle. Jesus alone was the one who had to forgive our sins. Jesus alone is the one that's going to transform us. And Jesus alone is the one that will invite us back home. And so we're in this series called um, Songs in the Key of Life. And so we're using um, worship songs. And I think there's so many worship songs that kind of sum up this picture. But one of my favorite songs, a song we sing um, around Easter time, it's called In Christ Alone. And I just want to share with you one of the stanzas because I just think this says it so beautifully, this poet put all of that in one stanza. It says, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Right? This work that Jesus did on the cross, dying, 
But then on Easter, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. And now he stands in victory. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered all the schemes of the evil one. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. No longer do I need to live in shame or fear of the punishment of God for the sin that I've done to other people, the sin that I've done towards God, or the very sinful nature that is deep within me. The curse of that sin has lost its grip on me. For now I am his and he is mine. Through all of this, I now get to be adopted into the family of God and I am his and he is mine. And this has all happened bought with the precious blood of Christ. That is the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That is the thing that satisfies the justice for others and the mercy for us. So I want to close our time with something that we don't do often here in the church. Um, I think there's this challenge where we, at least for me, this is not your challenge, but this is my challenge. I love to learn. I love to have my brain stimulated. I'm like, oh, I never thought about the exile theory of atonement. That's great, which it is great. But there's also part of our time together that I think God invites us to actually take a little step of faith, to move towards Christ, to not just take this intellectual knowledge that we have, but maybe we want to put ourselves out there and ask God for very specific things that we need. And I mean, some of you are just incredible people. You have these giant scoops of faith. And whenever there's any problem, when there's any issue, you have no problem standing before God, laying it all out on the line. Me, I'm kind of like the Grinch. My heart's like three sizes too small. My spirituality is like three sizes too small. But how gracious is God, right? Because he says, even if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can extend that to Christ, right? God, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. So even for people like me, God longs for the act of faith to put ourselves out there so that he can actually have his way in us. And so I'm going to invite you to do something that we don't do often as a church, um, but we're going to take a crack at it because I really think in the act of putting ourselves out there that God meets us in a new way. And so I'm going to say a couple of statements. If those apply to you, I would encourage you to stand up. It's kind of nerve wracking, I get that, but I've been standing in front of you for like 25 minutes. But if you would stand up, as an act of faith, either a giant scoop of faith or your tiny mustard seed offering and saying, God, I need this from you. And I'm going to offer a prayer for you. And so first, some of you are in desperate need of Louisville slugger justice, right? You have been wronged. You have been taken advantage of in such a way that you need somebody to stand up for you, to see you and to fight your battle for you. Sometimes that's a real life human being that you need God to defend you from. It's a spiritual thing. Maybe it's actually a systemic thing. But if you need Jesus to actually fight your battle for you, I would encourage you to stand up. How incredible that Jesus has fought and won our battle. And as we come to him with our little bit of faith, we long for him to continue to smash the teeth of the evil one, to make these wrongs right. Some of you, as I was talking, might have realized that you are actually the offender and that you have some sin in your life that is crushing you, that is crushing others, that you feel shame over, that you feel the punishment over, you don't know how to get through or get out. And this morning, Jesus wants to offer forgiveness for you. 
And so if you have some sin in your life that you need to receive Jesus's forgiveness, Jesus's pardon, I would encourage you to stand up. For me, as I've been wrestling this week in the sermon, this third one is the one that Jesus is just having his way in me, which is sometimes it's, I've, I've white knuckled my life for so long. I've kept all the bad things at bay for so long. But if I'm really honest, I have this layer of ground beef in me and that Jesus needs a new work in me. A new round of transformation needs to happen within me. And so this morning, if you are tired of white knuckling, if you're tired of just trying to be a good, noble person, and you just simply need Jesus to have another round of transformative work in you, to exchange his righteousness for yours, I would encourage you to stand up. And lastly, some of you have been around our church for a long time and you are our guests of honor. You've experienced mediocre coffee, but lots of great friendship and fellowship and incredible music. God is doing something in and around you and you are a guest of honor in the house of God. But maybe this morning, God is inviting you to take that step of faith to not just be a guest in the house of God, but to be adopted in, to take advantage of all of the work that Jesus has done on your behalf, to be a precious daughter and to be a precious son. And if that's you this morning, I would just encourage you to stand with your sisters and your brothers. Let me pray for us and then We'll continue our time together. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, I'm so thankful for my friends in this room and for the opportunity to come before you as needy, broken people. People who need you to fight our battles to defend the indefensible or those who have been wronged. We need you to, to fight our battles. And we're thankful that through your Son, through his death and resurrection, you have conquered sin, you have conquered death. And we long for you to make all the wrongs right. We recognize our own sin in that, God, and we ask for your forgiveness and for your mercy. We're thankful for because of your work on the cross, we've been pardoned completely. Our sin has been cast as far as the east is to the west. And as you forgive our sins, God, we ask that you would do the deeper work, that you would actually trans form us. Do the deep surgery, Jesus, that our inner life would match who you see us as righteous and holy people. So have your way with us more and more. And for my friends who said yes to you this morning, who've become, who've moved from being guests of honor to actually being your precious daughters and your pre precious sons, I pray that you would embrace them, that they would be, feel close to your Holy Spirit, that you would continue to mold them and transform them and that they would join your family, that along with them, all of us, we continue to die to ourselves, pick up our cross, and be your hands and feet as we stand for justice, as we encourage mercy, and as we walk humbly with your son, Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all of God's kids said, amen. Let's all stand together and sing in Christ alone.